So Gareth, with no further ado, um, please, I'm looking forward to hearing your, um, hearing your talk. Thank you very much and thank you everyone. I'm going to try to combine my talk with a PowerPoint presentation and I'm hoping that you can see the first image up on your screen and Jonathan maybe you can just you'll obviously let me know if there's any technical problems if if either there's no progression of the PowerPoint or if my voice goes or or something else but anyway um, it's a shame not to be actually with you like it's a shame we can't share a room together but it's very exciting to join you anyway and it's very very exciting to be joining UCL it's a huge huge adventure and I'm very honoured to be joining you and very much looking forward to it. So my aim is to talk relatively briefly, maybe for 20, 25 minutes about the US response to COVID. Um, and can history help us to understand um, the current crisis? The Trump administration's response to this uh, crisis is so remarkable that it's tempting to think that it lies completely outside of history or at least outside of the American political tradition. But is this a wholly exceptional story? And my um, argument is that it isn't. That in fact, in certain important respects, we can see the current crisis as the culmination of a process, a historical process in American responses to disaster going back at least a half century or so. Now, I should say um, right at the get-go that in my research, I'm not directly concerned for the most part with um, epidemics. And the reason for that is, is simply one of, of asymmetry, that big epidemics in a way more resemble wars or economic depressions in their effects, in their impact, in their implications than they do any of my natural disasters. I say my natural disasters because I've got quite possessive of them over the many years that I've been working on this on this project. But the, the deadliest of my natural disasters, uh, a hurricane that hit Galveston, Texas in 1900, cost 6,000 lives. Um, the great flu epidemic of 1918 cost an estimated 675,000 lives out of a population in the US at that time of, of 100 million. Um, but I nonetheless think that the historical story that I tell um, does have some pertinence to the current response to COVID um, in a number of respects. And I want to talk about three or four parallels that I see between my research and the current crisis. First of all, that modern natural disasters very frequently generate political controversy. They didn't used to. It used to be very atypical, but during the last half century, disasters have become increasingly contentious. Second, during the last half century, presidents, presidential leadership, has become much more central to how the nation responds to disaster than it used to be. So that's an important change. It's an important change in part because of the effect this has on public policy, because what I want to argue is that presidential leadership frequently results during a disaster in the marginalization of expertise and often has very unfortunate public policy consequences. The parallel that I want to draw between my research and the current crisis is that um, disasters throughout American history have tended to have very disparate ethno-racial impacts, as of course the COVID crisis has. The big difference during the last half century is that this is noticed. It becomes part of the political conversation in a way that it wasn't um, before about the late 60s or the early 1970s. And the final point, I, I may not get this far, but we can always take it up in the Q&A, 
I think if you look at recent presidencies, it would be possible to make the case for Clinton, for both Bushes, um, for Obama, and maybe now for for Trump as well, that disasters can really make a decisive difference to to a presidency. Like I say, happy to talk about that in response to questions. Uh, right, I think I'm ready to move on now. Oh, moved on too much. That's not very good. Here we are. Um, so the first of my themes that disasters are now um, frequently controversial in a way that they didn't used to be. Um, yeah, so it's become common, not just with COVID, but ever since roughly the early 1970s, to present the governmental response to disaster as being a disaster in its own right. It's become quite common to talk about um, the disaster after the disaster. Um, often it's been FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, that has been in the firing line, but presidents too have sometimes come under a fire for lack of leadership or for inept leadership. Like I say, this is quite a distinct pattern in terms of the larger sweep of US history. So what is going on here? Why should it be the case that during the last 50 years, disasters have become increasingly um, contentious and have in, in, increasingly in ways that have discomforted um, successive presidents? And my central claim will be that there's a straightforward explanation for this. And it is that Americans now have increasingly high expectations of their government when disaster strikes, but they have increasingly high expectations of a government that they simultaneously hold in contempt. And so let me take each part of that statement in turn. First of all, the historical process whereby um, Americans now expect more from their federal government and from their president when disaster strikes than used to be the case. I mean, if we, if we look at um, that flu epidemic in 1918, there was a fairly significant federal response in the sense that the Public Health Service was actively involved, trying to cooperate with local governments and states in, in responding to this terrible disaster. But Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, literally didn't make a single statement about this ghastly, um, ghastly epidemic that killed 675,000 people. Life is very different now. So um, what's the explanation? Let me try and move on to my next slide. What I'm interested in in my book is the idea that between the early republic and the present day, Americans' attitude towards risk and hence towards disaster changes fundamentally. What I um, want to argue is that in the early republic, life for American settlers was extremely precarious. They were surrounded by risk and that encouraged a certain fatalism, maybe stoicism in the face of disaster. Um, but over time, this has yielded to what I call um, a developing culture of security, an expectation that disasters that used to be just taken for granted, that's just the way it is. The expectation that disasters can either be prevented or at least can be ameliorated through collective action and through the application of expertise. Specifically, Americans increasingly looked to government to protect them, not just from Indians, but from epidemic disease, from flooding, from crop failure, from insect infestations, and then come the New Deal in the 1930s from economic insecurity. So in this new environment, in this culture of security, which doesn't progress all of a sudden, but develops over time during the 19th century and during the early 20th century, disasters that used to seem sort of what you'd expect, not all that surprising, they over time start to seem shocking 
and unnatural. And my next slide, um, I hope, is quite revealing. I hope you can see that. That's rather small, small print, but I can see it. So maybe maybe you can too. Um, so if we ask ourselves why Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was such a very shocking event, I think that part of the reason is because disasters that kill 1800 people are simply not supposed to happen anymore in the United States. And in fact, if you look at the list of the 10 deadliest US natural disasters in American history at the time of Katrina in 2005, then I'm sorry, <laughs> that slide has gone rather wonky. The dates have gone rather wonky. So forgive me for that, but I hope you can make some sort of sense out of that uh, anyway. But if you can, you will see what an outlier Hurricane Katrina is because all of the other deadliest natural disasters on that list happened in the late 19th century or in the early 20th century. None of the other ones, I think, are later than um, 1935. So this is thanks largely to things like flood and hurricane barriers, uh, improved weather forecasting, radar, um, efficient evacuations procedures, better communications, all of these things mean that disasters become a lot less deadly than they had done before. And um, by the 1950s, it's commonplace for scientists and elected politicians to predict the final conquest of disaster, the final conquest of nature through weather control. Here's a nice uh, magazine front page from the mid-1950s that anticipates a new era of weather control, that floods, disasters, hurricanes could maybe be prevented altogether, or in a rather sinister way, this article, inside article in that issue of Collier's, suggests that maybe weather can also be used as a Cold War weapon. You can create floods, create droughts um, in the Soviet Union or in or in China. Anyway, this sense that although we're not there yet, we're on a sort of historical process that involves progress and that means that um, we can expect this trajectory, this heartening trajectory to continue. Loss of life already becoming less common than it used to be will become even less common than that. Public health seems to, I mean, I should emphasize, I'm not an expert on this, but public health seems to fit this pattern with um, the polio vaccine capping a series of uh, dramatic mid-century triumphs for federal disease control that left the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health among the most admired and well-funded federal agencies. But all this does create a potential problem in mid-century America. What if things go wrong? What if a levee fails? What if a dam fails? What if um, the US Weather Bureau makes a mistake? As it did, for example, in 1957, when a Hurricane Audrey was approaching the um, Louisiana coast, the Weather Bureau told people in the southwest Louisiana coast that they had 12 hours before they needed to worry about the hurricane hitting. The hurricane sped out, sped up, hit the Louisiana coast eight hours ahead of, of, of predictions and 600 people died. So what, what's going to happen in that sort of situation? These expectations have the potential to create problems when things go wrong. Well, yeah, but it didn't actually matter that much politically. The political, politically consensual, Ewan may disagree with this, he's free to come back at me. He's, he and Robert Mason have edited a very good book on this, but in a comparatively consensual political world of the Eisenhower and the Kennedy years, it only really becomes heightened, this risk, 
when failure occurs against a backdrop of wider suspicion of government, such as has characterized American life since the late 1960s. So here's um, a graph that I hope you can see. You'll probably at least be able to see the uh, overall direction of travel. This is um, a Pew Trust. Gallup did very similar, similar polls that asked the American people every year, do you trust the government to do what is right just about always or most of the time? And you will see roughly that in 1964, when LBJ has his amazing election victory over Barry Goldwater, that popular faith in the federal government exceeds 80%. You'll see that it drops below 50% about 1972 and then it bottoms out below 30 percent at 1979 so if you want to understand why jimmy carter doesn't win re-election you can see that 1980 wasn't a great year for an incumbent president to be standing for re-election anyway my argument is that the sorts of problems that disaster management had always generated from time to time now fit a larger narrative of governmental failure. And that connection first becomes apparent to my mind in 1972 in relation to a hurricane that you might not have heard of called Hurricane Agnes, which as a tropical storm uh, deluges central Pennsylvania, also upstate New York, um, the worst damage is in central Pennsylvania, where the Susquehanna River overflows its, its banks and causes massive um, urban flooding. Not very much loss of life, but enormous property damage, very high levels of, um, of temporary homelessness. And this becomes a huge political um, hot potato for the Nixon administration in an election year. It's not at all clear to me um, that the Nixon administration's response to Hurricane Agnes is peculiarly bad or peculiarly inept, but it creates a firestorm of controversy that in the first instance um, affects George Romney, who was the housing secretary, father of Mitt Romney, and um, Controversy centers on the difficulty that the federal government has in supplying um, flood refugees with trailer homes. And um, becomes a big political football. But I think what's particularly interesting about it is the context. It's not just that it becomes a political football, but it becomes a political football at a time when newspapers about articles about Hurricane Agnes. The same issue will feature stories about Spiro Agnew, the vice president, rampaging around the country to rile the silent majority of Americans against liberals and against commie pinko subversives and against George McGovern. It's uh, a time when the American position in Vietnam is completely collapsing. It's actually the very same week, incidentally, as the uh, Watergate break-in. But here's the sort of um, newspaper coverage that people would see. On the right, there's an article about uh, the federal response to Hurricane Agnes. And then next to it is this very, very famous and distressing image from the Vietnam War of a poor little girl uh, who's been napalmed by um, the South Vietnamese Air Force. And I would argue that although that was a particularly febrile moment in American politics, the, the Nixon era, that actually disasters have continued to be politically contentious ever since. And this has resulted in presidents becoming far more central to disaster management than, than before, because for the simple reason that much more is at stake and the risk of sustaining political damage 
is far greater for Nixon and his successors than it ever was for, say, Eisenhower or for Kennedy. In fact, dealing with disaster has been a federal responsibility for a long time, but until the 1960s and 1970s, it was a, largely a bureaucratic responsibility. Involved um, agencies such as the Small Business Administration or the um, Bureau of Public Roads. When disaster struck, uh, their bureaucrats would work with elected officials to get federal resources to the scene. But during the last half century, presidents become much more to the fore, eager to convey empathy, eager to visit the scene, as Nixon did twice, once by just a, a helicopter visit, then in person, as he did at the time of uh, Hurricane Agnes, desperate to avoid being personally implicated in whatever problems might arise. This first affects public health product, um, politics in 1976, another election year, when the Centers for Disease Control warned the White House of the possibility that a new, swine, new strain of swine flu, similar to that of 1918, might be starting to emerge. Now, not all CDC experts agree that this was a serious threat, but Ford, who was in the middle of a very difficult primary fight with Ronald Reagan, um, he jumps on the issue right away, invests major resources in a high profile bid to develop a vaccine in time for the flu season, which would be getting underway just as he was going to be facing the electorate. In the event, the epidemic did not materialize did not materialize, can't even say it. And a number of Americans died after taking the hurriedly developed vaccine, uh, creating a flap that probably didn't help Ford's re-election prospect. Okay, so what um, effect has this growing presidential role in disaster management had on actual public policy? And my argument is that it often results in very bad public policy, that presidential leadership very often involves sidelining the experts and in poor um, policy choices. Um, the sidelining of Anthony Force's task force during the past six weeks might constitute an extreme case. Um, it's actually a very common general pattern for experts to be sidelined following a disaster. I don't think this is particularly hard to understand. It, it's because presidents, they see disaster almost exclusively through the prism of their own personal and immediate political needs. And this often comes at the expense of sound public policy, particularly when a president is campaigning for re-election, as is the case now, and as was the case in the autumn of 1979, when uh, Jimmy Carter visited the Alabama Gulf Coast following Hurricane Frederick. Now, Carter, as you may know, was a big environmentalist president. And one of his signature issues was that he wished to reduce incentives for development in hazardous coastal locations, especially barrier islands that maybe were chronically subject to flooding or occasionally to hurricanes. But Alabama was a state that Carter had won in 1976, where his popularity had since nosedived, which he badly wanted to win in 1980. When he visits Alabama, he tells the governor, Fob James, we will rebuild. Gulf Shores, we will rebuild uh, Dauphin Island, as it's called, bigger and better than ever. And so this island, Dauphin Island, which is off the Alabama um, Gulf Coast, is chronically subject to hurricanes. And at the time of Hurricane Frederick, only about 2,000 people lived there. And at FEMA and NOAA, the Oceanographic um, Agency, they saw a great opportunity when the bridge connecting Dolphin Island to the mainland was destroyed by the hurricane. 
They said, great, we won't rebuild the bridge. We'll just have a ferry connection that will work perfectly well. And it will be a significant disincentive to um, renewed investment in this chronically vulnerable area. What happens instead is that um, Jimmy Carter commits his administration to rebuilding the bridge with twice the capacity that it had before. And this results in a building boom in Alabama, uh, in Dolphin Island, which has regularly been hit by hurricanes with substantial property damage um, ever since. So my coming towards the end now, but my um, next theme has to do with the racial politics of disaster. So the disproportionate on African-Americans and on Native Americans has been widely noted. Last week's economist um, noted that African-Americans who become infected with COVID are 2.4 times as likely to die as are whites who become infected. Now, this fits a historical pattern that has very deep roots. Uh, research on past US natural disasters reveals disparate racial impacts to be a ubiquitous theme. But what is relatively recent is the fact that minority suffering is now noticed in a way that it didn't used to be. Because throughout American history, up until the late 1960s, black suffering generally did not register in either political or media responses to disaster. When Hurricane Betsy struck New Orleans as late as 1965, for example, 90% of fatalities were black, a far higher percentage than after Katrina. But this did not become a political issue or a media talking point. It simply was not noticed. So I argue in my book that one of the accomplishments of the African-American freedom struggle of the 1960s and also of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty was to make black suffering in disaster visible for the first time in American history. And you could argue that coverage of Katrina as when Wolf Blitzer reported from New Orleans in 2005 and saw these blurry images and said in a tone of shock, they are so poor, they are so black. That and the fact that African-American suffering is noticed in the context of the COVID crisis might be seen as the culmination of this recent historical pattern. However, and maybe we can talk about this in the Q&A, it's far less clear to me that this new visibility has translated into minority political power in any enduring way. I think there was a temporary impact in the late 60s, early 70s, but it doesn't seem to have endured. Okay, so now by conclusion, I want to just mention two aspects of the current crisis that do strike me as being entirely or very largely unique. Um, firstly, we seem to be seeing the possible rebirth by force of circumstance rather than by design of a robust and quite encouraging model of federalism. Current news coverage and more reflective articles in places like Atlantic Monthly, including a very good one a few weeks ago by Gary Gerstle, suggests that states, counties and municipalities have to a very considerable degree managed to fill the void left by lack of federal leadership or by actively destructive federal leadership. Now, if true, this completely reverses the entire trajectory of American disaster politics during the past 70 years, which has been characterized by growing and in recent decades, almost total reliance on federal leadership. So if one enduring impact of Trump's leadership were to be a rebalancing 
of the federal, state and local roles in disaster response, that would probably be quite a beneficial uh, unintended outcome, given that the current federal role in responding to disaster is so frequently counterproductive, and given that effective response to any local or regional disaster, um, such as those I'm concerned with in my book, must in the first instance inescapably rest on competent and fleet-footed leadership by subnational governments. Um, and then my sort of final point, presidents responding to disaster, I've argued, always pursue what they perceive to be their personal self-interest. However, Trump's conception of his political self-interest is wholly unique. For in the past, including in the recent past, the norm has been to try to project empathy rather than to use crisis as an opportunity for further inflaming existing divisions within society. That brings me to George W. Bush and Katrina. Although he was widely panned for his response to Katrina, Bush thought he was following a standard model when he flew over New Orleans following Katrina and did so less ineptly a few weeks later when he gave an emotional speech in Jackson Square, emphasizing his personal fondness for the city and its people and committing his administration to rebuilding New Orleans. So it's a remarkable testament to the distinctive contribution of Donald Trump to disaster management that we can now look back almost with fondness and nostalgia on George W. Bush's response to Hurricane Katrina. Those were the days. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much, Gareth, for that very stimulating talk. Um, and we've got some time for questions and discussion. So there's the hand raise funk feature in the bottom middle of everyone's screen. So if you're able to put that up, um, and uh, I will, and then you've got the microphone thing you can unmute next to it on the bottom centre. So, um, Tom. Hi. Um, I, I, I don't know if the, I, I'm slightly late. Uh, hi, Tom Packer, um, uh, yeah, honorary fellow here, as I think Gareth knows me well, so I don't think he needs much explanation. Um, I don't think I'm able to switch on my video. Um, uh, that was, as always, a really interesting and stimulating talk on this. I was just um, thinking, um, going to, for now at least, going to say, um, suggest something on public opinion and something on Congress. One is a specific point, which is if you look at Bush's falling ratings, they fell just as fast before and after Katrina. You probably okay. do the Iraq war, so it's not clear. It got him a lot of bad press, but it's not clear how much it actually drove his popularity down. But in terms of public opinion, is what we're seeing here partly a increased expectations? Um, in, in uh, it seems to me one way of looking at your story is that you get to a situation where expected government will do things. And then instead of people being grateful for the president, they start complaining about the president. And the second is Congress was very silent in the story, I think. And it seemed to me quite a big part of it is presumably this is exactly the kind of thing Congress likes spending money on like water. And I think that is something to think about in the context of what's happened in coronavirus in that surely spending on coronavirus has got to be higher than all other disasters in American history put together. So that's a very substantial thing the federal government's done for better or worse in response. So it's the Congress and, and also public opinion expectations. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm very, very perceptive um, comments. Um, I don't know very much about uh, Congress's role in responding to the um, COVID crisis, so I won't talk about that. I'd be very interested to know if, if other people sort of have a view about that. Um, in terms of my story more generally, um, I would say that often what I've, what I've said about presidents in general applies to elected politicians more generally. So yes, you're right, Tom, that on the whole, legislators and presidents are sort of on the same page, that in the heat of a disaster, 
long-term questions of mitigation and disaster prevention go out of the window and generally speaking all of the emphasis is on spending money helping people to rebuild their lives rebuilding infrastructure and so it's not just presidents whose role has the effect of sidelining experts it's probably the exigencies of electoral politics more generally in the kind of rather populist majoritarian context of, of american democratic politics that helps to explain that pattern thank you uh, kevin gareth thank you very much both for a very stimulating uh, presentation on a really important topic and very and welcome very much uh, to the institute thank you kevin uh, if, if it turns out that uh, the COVID crisis uh, does represent a shift toward a new federalism where uh, disaster relief is concerned. Yeah. Will that be because of the Trump factor and his unique or somewhat different response to it, uh, or because it's a public health disaster, unlike the natural, the natural disasters that you were talking about, yeah. and health policy does ultimately fall to the states for the most part? Yeah. Yeah. I. I that's a really good question. I mean, of course, I don't know because it's it's talking about the future, but it seems to me that um, the fact that cities like San Francisco, through an early lockdown, have been able to limit death toll to 40, that there are these sort of very interesting sort of state variations in mortality. I find it hard to believe that there won't be some sort of larger take-home message. Um, if I'm right in thinking, you know, that the federal role in responding to smaller-scale disasters has not only become contentious, but has been contentious in part because it has often been um, sort of inept, bureaucratic, um, damaging. I think if you put that trajectory together with the various sort of heartening lessons of, of COVID in, in terms of successful state and local leadership, then I think it makes every sense that, that this would have some sorts of enduring effects. So that's a bit of a waffle, but I don't know how better to answer that. Thank you. Thank you, Paolo. Paolo? Um, just to go back to Kevin's question and, and maybe it, um, just suggest a, a, a potential avenue for research, it might be interesting to compare what's happened in the US with what's happening in Brazil, where I think what your, um, the, the picture you're painting also uh, is, is evident in the sense that with Bolsonaro um, really not taking the, the pandemic seriously, this has created uh, space for governors to play a much more active role. So there too, federalism seems to be uh, a major factor in how the pandemic is um, playing out. And how would that fit into, into a historical pattern in the case of Brazil? Uh, I think Malo would be a better place than, than me to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. Mali wanted to come in there or not. <laughs> Hi, sorry. Hi, Hi Alexandra. Come on, go ahead. Um, hi, Gareth. Thank you very much uh, for your Hello. talk. This, this is really interesting. Um, as Paulo was saying, uh, the federal dynamics in Brazil are also very interesting um, and, and similar to what you're saying in the context of you know, when, when you have a, a more incompetent federal government, um, you know, municipalities and um, and state, uh, well, and governors uh, gaining political capital. I think that one of the big differences, and then historically that also matters, is that institutions of, uh, of federalism, especially when it comes to uh, budgets, are, are distributed quite differently uh, in the context of Brazil. And so, coalition presidentialism has worked in such a way um, that has 
in, in a lot of ways uh, determined the level of influence that mayors uh -huh. and, uh, and governors have or the level of you know, money, et cetera. And so I think that those institutional dynamics uh, offer an interesting contrast, even if uh, there are all of these parallels um, of, you know, federalism and, and subnational units. And so perhaps it would be looking at uh, institutional changes, but also uh, moments of uh, critical junctures uh, and critical junctures here perhaps provide this historical framework to to analyze uh, the ways or the moments in which uh, subnational uh, units might have had greater or lesser levels of, of you know influence. Thank you very much, Malu. I'd love to pick your brain further about that at some point. We'll talk for sure. <laughs> Alexandra. Hi, um, I just wanted to say about, obviously you mentioned the impact of things like Hurricane Katrina on black Americans and obviously now in the context of coronavirus, especially with Americans getting, the, well, some Americans only getting that $1,200 check and stuff, do you think economically and both like through like the racial perspective, do you think in the context of coronavirus, you said the big Black people have been getting like more attention and stuff, media maybe. Do you think that's uh, gotten better since Katrina? Obviously, with like the divisive nature of Trump, it's gotten worse. I just wanted to hear your perspective on that. Thank, thank you, Alexandra. I mean, um, I'm not sure that I have a, a particularly sort of informed view of that. I'd be interested to know what what you think my impression is is that it's i haven't picked up any sense that it's um it's it's got worse i mean the the point i was trying to make in my in my um talk was that there seems to me to perennially perennial difficulty in converting visibility into actual concrete um federal resources and uh, i think that probably is something that has got worse over time, Alexandra. So I'm not, I'm not so sure about public opinion, but in terms of the actual practical politics of it, I think that's something that might well um, have deteriorated. If you think about Hurricane Katrina, of course, the discriminatory effect on African-Americans became a really central part of the political story. But when you look at how the federal resources were spent, they were spent disproportionately on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which is actually very, very heavily white, the Mississippi Gulf Coast, um, at the expense of areas of Louisiana that were heavily black and that were, were much more adversely affected. So I think that's a deterioration since say, the Great Society era, since the Johnson and Nixon period, when African Americans acquired not just visibility, but the sort of political voice that could give them influence when disaster struck. And I see that in my research in the late 60s and early 1970s. And I've, I've sort of struggled to pick it up in relation to subsequent disasters. So I think that ultimately was a rather, um, I'm afraid, a rather ephemeral moment. I'm sorry I can't say more about public opinion, Alexandra. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Luke. Hello, can you hear me okay? I yeah. can. Right, okay. Um, a large part of your, your talk was about expectations of, um, of, of response, and um, I wondered, in light of that, um, maybe it's kind of a partly two-pronged two question, I wondered, in light of that, whether... Are those expectations held by the public um, unreasonable, and or is it just a case that the response has, on occasion, the board has been dropped, and there are other examples and where the response has been actually very good, and mm. whether those expectations are, are kind of unrealistic, and that's part mm. one of my. The part two, if I may be so bold as to have a second uh, question, is is um, what role? Do you want to ask your second in a bit? Because otherwise, I'm just going to forget the first. Sure. All right, of course, absolutely. 
in fact, I'm, I'm not sure I haven't already <laughs> forgotten the first one. No, it's whether these expectations are are reasonable and whether whether it's a case that expectations have been raised throughout a president or an administration's term and yeah. then people have had their expectations kind of brought crashing down to earth with a response and whether there's been another response yeah. throughout that time which has actually been very good and it's just occasionally yeah. they are they are they are lapsed in their response yeah i don't i don't don't want to sound too overly schematic about it but um taking that risk i would say that from the early republic through till about the 1960s there was a rough kind of equilibrium between what people expected from their government when disaster struck and its actual capacity to deliver i think since roughly the johnson presidency um uh, there have been more occasions where the limits of governmental capacity to help have become evident. And I think that's, I suggested in my talk, that's partly just because the overall environment is so anti-government. So, so these things are noticed in a way they weren't before. But I think as well that it's a case that government had got so big and so bureaucratic by the 1970s that it became um, really quite rigid and sort of muscle bound and was much less able to act sort of swiftly and supply and in a, in a kind of flexible, alert sort of way. I mean, I, I've looked at um, various records from the 1950s of having to do with Hurricane Audrey, which I mentioned briefly in my talk. And I'm really struck by the degree to which bureaucrats in particular agencies knew one another they'd pick up the phone talk to one another say okay so here's the problem what are we going to do about it and there was a sort of degree of relative simplicity to government and a degree of human to human interaction and a degree of non-rigidity like just ask the question what do we need to help let's do it whereas if you if you go forward to the 19 70s you don't see that as much and certainly governors tearing their hair out uh, by the 1970s the fact that government is spending enormous amounts of money on disaster relief but governors really struggle to know who do i call about this why are you doing this you're doing that but you're not talking to each other you're not coordinating um what you're doing. So I, I suspect that actually um, government capacity has reduced since the 1960s compared to 1950s. And it's partly because government is just trying to do so much more than it was trying to do in the 1950s. So things necessarily um, become more complicated. What was your second question? My second question was that we're often told now that we're living in a kind of post-truth era in politics and it's very difficult for people to discern what's real and what isn't and i wondered if that yeah. would be reasonably expected to have an impact on what the populace could expect as a response from their government when it pertains to a, a disaster you mean what effect it would have on public attitudes well, what they what they I mean because they, they're I mean if you take the current administration presumably they're regularly told depending on the outlet they consume it from they're regularly told that everything's fine and it's all going to be great so does that have yeah. a, a meaningful impact on what they expect is, is, is my point I, I bet it does I bet it does I mean um, I think it makes a massive difference this both the shift to 24-hour news that you start to see early 90s the first time i see it in my story is something called hurricane andrew in 1992 and that leads to the emergence of something called um cnn syndrome uh, and live television feeds really start to have a sort of decisive impact on media coverage um i think as well so that the speeding up, the greater immediacy, visual shock, social media, all that makes a difference. The other thing, I suppose, is the shift from, um, I think people say the shift from broadcasting to broadcasting. That 
during the 1950s, when Hurricane Audrey took place, which I've mentioned a couple of times, actually the, the federal response was pretty inept. That wasn't really captured on the, you know, the few dominant media outlets of the day. So the issue just sort of died in a way that would be much less likely today. So I think it's the it's not just the polarization of of media, but also just the proliferation uh, of media that is fundamentally transformative to disaster politics. And thanks for your questions, Luke. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, you had your hand up earlier and I don't know, it sort of went down, but it's back up. Do you want to ask it now? Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks for a really stimulating talk. So my question is, um, you mentioned briefly the possibility that COVID will lead to a, a kind of new federalism and the possibility of that leading to a more competent response to disasters. Um, given that state and local budgets have been eviscerated by COVID though, I was wondering how far you think that will actually be possible, uh, how far they may have to rely on congressional uh, appropriations uh, in order to do that. That's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, what do you know about that story, about about the degree to which state and local resources have been eviscerated? Uh, so it's just media reports uh, yeah. suggesting going to be fairly substantial cuts. Uh, and obviously there was the, uh, the comment coming from uh, Republican senators that states should just go bankrupt uh, rather than uh, the pay the costs. Yeah, I honestly don't know. I mean, just just off the top of my head, I wonder if um, it you know probably be the case in Britain. Don't you think that local governments would be much more sort of incapacitated or enfeebled by that that sort of historical pattern probably than than in the U.S. I mean, I would just guess that U.S. states continue to have greater um, tax raising power and authority than a local authority um, or a council um, would, would have in Britain. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting to think about that in, in comparative terms. Thanks, Naomi. Did you have a question? Yes. Um, how, uh, thank you for the talk as well. It was really interesting. You're welcome. Um, how would you explain how many um, many people expect a strong response from their government, um, but then do not follow the guidelines that the government puts in place for them? I have literally no more basis for answering that question than anyone else in the room. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you have a view about that? Well. I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying about how people have a higher expectation of their government now and yeah. the idea that they also, especially in um, America, they have this high degree that they feel they ha should be able to rely on themselves and yeah. have certain freedoms. Because I know in California that's a big thing where there were very strong mm. lockdowns but then a lot of people think that they should make their own choices on whether they start up their business again. Hmm. I think that's a very good point, Naomi. It's this, uh, this paradox, isn't it, again, of, um, of, of it feeling entitled to large amounts of government aid, um, but also adhering very firmly to these anti-statist sort of political views so this combination of like my um residents of dauphin island alabama who are all no doubt very very conservative republicans when it's a disaster they expect washington to bail them out with billions of dollars but if the federal government knocks on their door and says okay we'll give you some money but there are strings attached to it you can't build a house right on the beach, or you've got to put it on the stilts. They say, this is America. You know, we're not living in some kind of communist state. Get out of the way. 
So I think, anyway, I think you draw sort of an interesting contrast there that in a way goes to the heart of American political culture. Thank you. We've got time for one more question and it looks like Tom is, is would like to have another question. So Tom, would you like to? First word and the last word. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm very happy to give way to anyone it was, else. It was ever that. It was just, um, it was partly, um, uh, at the risk of sounding like a congressional monomania, it struck me that one reason why Mississippi got more funds than Louisiana might be because the Mississippi senators, Fad Cochran of the Appropriations Committee and Trent Lott, who yeah, and were so powerful, and the Gulf Coast is Trent Lott's base. And also the congressman for the Gulf Coast of Mississippi was a very conservative Democrat who represented a very endangered district. So I, I think it's interesting to think how the congressional framework might explain some of these racial disparities. I was also going to say in terms of putting coronavirus in this context, isn't part of the reason why it's so state focused, got very little, I think this links a bit what I was saying about funding earlier being so high, that disease the states have always fundamentally been in charge we just haven't had a pandemic or, or a you know socially something socially constructed as a pandemic if you prefer for a hundred years so and, and the other thing about politics is and this fits very well with what naomi was saying is you're forcing people not to do stuff so it's one thing to give endless money and have uncle sam pull the tab it's another thing to be restricting people going to church going on black life matters demonstrations having their businesses and that's always going to be more politically difficult in the areas affected so i was wondering to what degree the federalism and the controversy is more a product of the nature of the disaster maybe so i don't i don't really know i mean in terms of the point you make if i just adjust one of those points the the one about state leadership in public health because that's come up a couple of times i mean i i recognize that but i think that um the overall trajectory i describe is as true for public health as it is for other other disasters really um i mean i mentioned the swine flu scare of 1976 that was going to be followed up by um Legionnaire's disease and then um aids uh, and then um a series of other viruses uh, since then there were three virus scares under obama the zika virus h1n1 and ebola and so i think there has been a sort of trajectory there's a sort of new era both of dangerous viruses and of political concern about um dangerous viruses there was a a particular book that i jotted down the details that came out in 1994 that won a, a pulitzer prize and it was called oh it was called the coming plague by someone called Laurie Garrett. And I think the trajectory over the last half century has been towards um, a greater concern about epidemic disease, which I think was something that um, Americans in general and including experts, including medical experts, had become very sanguine about uh, between the 1940s and um, the early 1970s i was i was reading um an article in the atlantic monthly i think about a big infectious diseases doc who was giving a speech to a graduating class of about 300 and this was in the mid 70s and he said i don't know what you're all going to do <laughs> unless you're going to infect one another and then just do bizarre tests or something like that so there was this sort of sense that the this era of epidemics and pandemic threats had um uh, was in the past and then since the late 70s that's that's not been the case and i think with that has has come a growing reliance on the feds through until about the obama administration but then in fact funding for the public health service just sorry for the sense of disease control um really tanked mostly once republicans took control of of congress i think two years into the obama presidency and uh, and that process hasn't been hasn't been reversed since then so there may tom 
you know, there may just because of that diminution in resources be a sort of default reassertion of a kind of state primacy in public health that I think you don't find as much between the late 70s and the Obama presidency. Interesting. Thanks as always, Gareth. Very interesting. Um, yes, and I would like to join um, Tom in saying thanks ever so much, Gareth, for a really interesting and stimulating paper. And it's made me even more excited that you're joining us in July um, as a professor of US history. Um, really exciting work that you're doing. Oh, yeah. I look forward to hearing more of it.